Strap in, it's episode number 57 of the Divorce Resource Guy podcast. Today we're going to talk about love, forgiveness, divorce, and how it all works together. Welcome to the Divorce Resource Guy podcast with Jason Lavoie, a.k.a. the Divorce Resource Guy, a former divorce attorney turned divorce coach, talking about all things divorce, including the good, bad, and the ugly from an attorney's point of view. Remember, you're not alone. And now, your host, Jason Lavoy. All right. Welcome, everybody, to yet another episode. We are at episode number 57. Yes, 57. And today I have a great guest for you, Dr. Duena Welch. Dr. Welch is a author and coach known for using social science to solve real-life relationship issues. She was a professor at universities in Florida, California, and Texas over 20 years and has contributed to NPR, PBS, Psychology Today, and numerous other outlets, podcasts, and videos. Her first book, Love Factually, 10 Proven Steps, I Wish I Do, in 2015, is out. Uh, it's in five languages. Can you believe that? Um, and she has a new book series, Love Factually Singles. Uh, that opened in 2019, and, pro- and provides science-based dating advice in short single-topic titles to save readers time and money while delivering content specific to their needs. See, all of Dr. Welch's books rely on science rather than opinion to help men and women find and keep the right partner. So that's what this is about. It's actually all science-based, which is why it's so intriguing to me, um, rather than just you know emotional, fluffy kind of um, opinion-based uh, stuff that you hear a lot, which also can be very important, but this is science-based, so it, it has some real meat and potatoes to it. So that's why I am excited to introduce to you Dr. Duena Welch. Dr. Duena Welch, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you. It is so wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me on. No, absolutely. Um, and I'm even more excited today because what we're going to talk about is it's an issue that maybe gets brought up you know, as kind of like a, a passing feature in other discussions, but it's not something people dwell on for obvious reason. It's not very exciting. Um, but I think it's so important, um, and that is forgiveness. But before we get into that, I want you to just give everybody who might not be familiar with you um, a little background about, you know, who you are and kind of how you got to this point. Yeah, sure. So uh, I have a PhD in developmental psychology, so I'm a bona fide nerd. And what I really love to do is take social science information, so not just from psych, but from anthropology, um, biopsych, psychology, evolutionary psych, different different fields within the social sciences, and I like to make those user-friendly so people can take something right now today, apply it to their lives, and see the benefit. Because science, unlike opinion, tells us what will happen to most people most of the time. Opinion is right after the fact. The science gives us the ability to predict, which means that even though I can't say, Jason, next Tuesday, this will happen to you, I can say, this is what happens to most people most of the time. So this is how you hedge your bets. I got into this because, frankly, I wasn't very good at dating. And so back when I, back when I was in graduate school and I, I was going through a heartbreak of massive proportions, it just occurred to me, wow, I'm studying this one field of psychology, but I wonder if there are scientists who have studied forming and keeping really healthy relationships. And it turned out there were a lot of them. And so I started Mm -hmm. massing this information primarily for my own benefit. And it wasn't until years later that people had heard about my success in my own life and and the way I was thinking about these things. And they started hiring me to do it for them. And eventually that turned into my full-time life's work. And I have uh, seven books out now. They're all under the Love Factually name and brand. Um, and I'm on a lot of podcasts. Thank you for having me on this one and uh, do a lot of public speaking, some for universities. Um, so this is my whole bag now. I love it. It's just very meaningful. The best part of my day is the time when I check my email and I get the letters from people who are now happily partnered and feel like they've got what they've always wanted. That's really just means a lot to me. No, that's awesome. And you know, the most important uh, piece that I just took out of that was that and people I think need to hear, right, is that it's possible, like love and positive relationships is a real thing. Um, and it may not be easy to find, but it's possible. And it's sometimes when people are coming out of a divorce, especially a, a contested divorce or a really bad relationship, you know, that's kind of hard to swallow for them. And I get it. 
Um, but it is possible, right? <laughs> you know, it's even probable. So I had I this that. client, I had this client years, a couple years ago who, um, just wrote to me, a single mom with several children who wrote to me just to say, you know, that last time that I reached that you reached out to me because every now and then I'll just send clients. Hey, how you doing? She said the last time you reached out to me and I was about to give up and you gave me all the reasons I needed to hang in there. She said, I did. I just borrowed your faith and I hung in there and now I'm, I've never been in love with like this. This man is, it's a healthy relationship. We get along so well. He gets my kids. He understands me. Um, our lives we're, we're melding our lives and it's a great relationship. So what research shows is that most people wind up eventually, maybe not the very first time, but eventually partnering with someone that they really are going to, it's going to be very lasting and it's going to be a healthy, happy relationship. So that's what I like being a part of is getting people there. So I know we're going to talk about forgiveness and I promise you we're going to talk about forgiveness. But before that, I just, because we're just kind of going into this a little bit, I just have to ask you when you say love is probable, is it, I always thought with, you know, the advent of online dating and, you know, it's really hard I think to meet people these days, especially when you're a working professional and you know, you're a, a quote adult and you're not hanging out in bars and clubs anymore that. So when you say it's probable, do you mean by like the laws of, well, I guess, probability and chance that two people are just going to bump into each other? That's a great question. And one that nobody's ever uh, framed quite that way. So when I, when I say it's probable, I mean that the vast majority of American adults wind up partnering in marriage in a, in a lasting union. And for since 2000, the stay together rate on first marriages has been two thirds. So divorce rates are not anywhere near 50, 50 right now. They're, they're more like, um, you know, 66% staying together, uh, to, to more than that, staying together a lifetime. Of those who divorce, it is true with every subsequent remarriage, the odds of staying with that partner decrease. Interestingly, that's not true of certain subgroups. African-Americans tend to do better on the second marriage in terms of stay together rates. I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there is a little bit of, of uh, noise in the data where there's some groups that do better on the second marriage. Okay. But um, basically... If, if you look at those second marriages, people do, most of them, like 75%, about, about half, half of them, depending on how many kids they have and their own circumstances, about a quarter to half of them stay together for the rest of their lives. Then people get into third marriages, and it's not, you know, if there are no kids involved, they may have a 50% odds of staying together. But what you see is over time, most people are getting into a relationship that satisfies them well enough that they go ahead and stay in that relationship. And so I really wasn't talking about the way people get into relationships when I, when I said love is probable. Now, when you ask about the way people get in the relationship, it, in the 1950s, most people married somebody who lived on their same block. Right. They lived, they married somebody who they could have walked to. In, in fact, right up until like the 1990s, most people got married to someone where they could have walked to that person's office or house from their office or house. Oh, wow. As and late now, as the 90s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But then what happened? The internet happened and online dating happened. And so now um, we've got, as of a handful of years ago, um, we've got more than a third of people meeting online who get, who get married. So that, that has on online on app has really been transformative. Neil Clark Warren, who is the uh, data head and, and uh, research scientist and psychologist who started eHarmony projected that it would reach 70% in a few years. I don't think we're there yet. But if anything, what's happened is we've gone from, you have to meet through friends and family. You almost have to meet there to you can still meet through friends and family and you have all these other options. Right. That's both good and bad. Yeah. It's overwhelming. It can be overwhelming. And unfortunately, um, so I try to drive my clients toward desktop use rather than apps because on apps, what you see is a series of photos and you've got very little information about the human being. Right. Yeah. Swipe right. If you like them, swipe left. If you don't. And 
So um, what's happening is the vast majority of men and women now are going only by photos because it's almost all the information they have. That would be that even that could work out if people were looking for an actual physical match. There's something in social science called the matching phenomenon, which means that we tend to meet, we tend to date, we're more likely to date, we're more likely to fall in love with, get get uh, serious with, um, get engaged to marry, and stay happily married with people where we are a on on a par in our physical attractiveness and a lot of other variables. So not just physical attractiveness. Right. Unfortunately, what's happening right now with swipe right, swipe left is most men and women are only swiping right on somebody that's substantially better looking than they are. And that's wow. not good. Because right. you're not competitive with people who are substantially better looking than you are, A. And B, if even if one of these gods or goddesses deigns to give you their attention, it's not likely to work out. It's so funny and true um, that you say that. And if you need another uh, example, I don't think he listens to this as my younger brother. <laughs> he would always, uh, you know, on the online dating world, he would always pick women who were not that he's a bad looking guy at all. He's, but he would always pick like the models, you know, the model esque, uh, stereotypical model esque type women who frankly, right, are, never really showed any interest in him. And even if they did, everybody knew they wouldn't be a good match for a whole host of other reasons. Um, but he would still go after and then not understand why he can't meet somebody. <laughs> and then when somebody more on his level would contact him, you know, he would blow him off. And it, it's from a sibling and uh, I know some of his friends' perspectives, it was so frustrating because, you know, he passed up, I think, a lot of good opportunities. And But yeah, I, that phenomenon is really true. Yeah, we need to really, if you want a happy relationship, part of what you have to do is is ascertain your own, find people who are like you, not just in physical attractiveness, but yes, in physical attractiveness. Now, there is an exception. If your brother was uh, extremely good looking himself, then he can, he can fish in that pond. Or if he's extremely wealthy, because all over the world, wealthy partners uh, are able to successfully choose partners who are better looking, right? That works all over the world, especially if it's right. a heterosexual couple, the guy has the money and the girl has the looks. But other than that, you're really looking for somebody who's, who's a, a good match. And I have this exercise I go through with clients about how do you figure out who is a good match and, and how do you figure out what you have to offer and, and what you should be asking for? Because a lot of people, their standards for looks are too high and their standards for everything else are too low. Right. So I realize that's not what we're talking about today. Maybe we'll have another podcast and talk about that. <laughs> I know. Maybe we should talk about that. But no, I, I, I feel bad because I wanted to talk about forgiveness. But I love this topic too, if you couldn't tell. Um, so we'll come back. If you'd love, I would love to have you back and we could just really dive into the whole dating and meeting people uh, topic. Absolutely. So let's bring it down a few notches to forgiveness. <laughs> yeah, forgiveness is not sexy. You know, like, like I was discussing with you before show, this is one of those things where I say, Hey, you want to talk about forgiveness? And whoever's running the podcast says, Oh no, that, you know, I went to right. Who jumped up for that? And, and that was boring. And I, I don't want to hear about that. But I think that's because people don't understand that the way scientists frame forgiveness is different than the way, you know, probably your religious community framed it. And it's probably a lot, frankly, healthier because most religious communities um, frame forgiveness as something that involves you having to be a doormat and welcome this person to do it to you again. And that doesn't make sense. It's no wonder that people who've been through divorce don't want to forgive if they conceptualize forgiveness as, why don't you come back here and do all the stuff I hated the first time? Just do it to me again. Why don't you just keep doing that? And I'll just keep turning the other cheek. And that is not what scientists are talking about when they're talking about forgiveness. Right. Like I'm okay with your behavior and I forgive you, that kind of a thing. Right. I don't think that's that's the way to go at all. So let's talk about the science. Like how would you define from a scientific point of view forgiveness? So forgiveness is actually from a science point of view, a really simple yet profound thing. All it is, is letting go of your anger and your vengefulness about this person and the events that happened. 
It's just letting, it's letting go of any desire you have for revenge. I know when I'm really having a hard time forgiving somebody because I'll have revenge fantasies about them. I'm not going to carry them out. But the fact that I'm having those tells me I haven't let go of this. I'm still living with a lot of anger if I'm thinking that way. And so what forgiveness research shows is that numerous, if you randomly assign people, and of course, an experiment is superior to opinion because an experiment randomly assigns people to experience something versus not experience it maybe until later. You have a control group and an experimental group. And then you see, do you get certain outcomes with the experimental group and you don't get those outcomes with the control until after you've also given them whatever good stuff you gave the experimental group. And in forgiveness science, what we know is if you randomly assign people to go through forgiveness exercises and other people don't get it until after the study's done, the people who got the forgiveness exercises wind up feeling unburdened. They wind up feeling um, lighter about their life. They wind up feeling happier about themselves and about other people. They wind up feeling more free to establish and hold on to good relationships and more successful at actually doing that. So there are a lot of reasons to forgive. And I think the reasons people don't forgive, I think this because I taught psychology in universities for 20 years and I talked to them about this research. And so I would ask my students, you know, what do you think is the reason people don't forgive? And so these are the reasons that people would come up with to me. You know, they would tell me, well, I can't forgive this person because they don't deserve it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. What else? Well, you're right. They don't. That's not why you forgive. We'll get back to that in a minute. It, it, Jason, something you just said. You just said, um, what was it? Something about. Uh, oh, geez, don't ask me to remember what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> it was, you said, you said something about um, how, you know. Forgiveness essentially amounts to saying it's no big deal. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. It's not okay. That's why you're struggling with forgiving them. Look, I am not struggling with forgiving the person who cut me off in traffic this morning. That's over and done with. I'm not going to think about that anymore. The only reason it came into my mind now is we're doing this podcast. When we struggle with forgiving somebody, it's because it is a big deal. To you. That's why. It's a big deal to you. But that's the only person that matters. Right. It's a big deal to me. And I happen to matter in this case because I'm the person struggling with forgiveness. So it is a big deal. De facto, I define it as such. Therefore, it is. Right. So somebody cutting somebody off in the morning and we're at, you know, it's 4.30 where I am. They, um, if they were still kind of festering over that incident, then obviously they haven't forgiven that, you know, haven't forgiven. But it's a big deal to them. It is a big deal to them. I will say they also have anger management issues and they need to seek help for that. And I'm totally serious about that. Like most people, most people, when they're talking about something, they need to forgive something that's been on their heart for a long time. I'm talking about the letter I got from a former student who said after the forgiveness section in the class, it was the first time since she was 14 that she felt free and happy. The first time since she was 14. And how old was she? I mean, 20 something. She was 20-something, oh, yeah. but I had a lot of students who'd been raped in their early teens who had felt like if I forgive, it opens me up to experiencing this again, whether with this person or another person. Well, of course, you're not going to forgive. You're not going to let go of your anger and vengeful feelings if you feel like it's going to happen again because this is a big deal. And I don't want it to happen to you again. Forgiveness is not about being vulnerable to re-injury. It is not about that. That And that's important, uh, a very important distinction. So I'm glad you said that because when people think forgiveness, to me, coming from a layman's point of view or opinion, you know, you think of um, in order for me to forgive somebody for somebody, for something that I feel, you know, either wronged me or hurt me. Um, I have to go through the emotions of that experience again. Maybe I suppress them, you know, it's something very serious and traumatic like or a rape. But, you know, in order to let go and forgive, you have to go through the emotional aspect of re- kind of reliving the incident again. Is that would that be fair? Yeah, a lot of people, that's a good point. A lot of people are afraid to do this because they're afraid of being re-traumatized by remembering it. But the the point of fact is, 
if you are still angry and still feeling vengeful, either one of those things, you haven't let it go. It is still running the show. Right. It is blocking your happiness. And so revisiting those things is going to be helpful more than hurtful. So, you know, try to take the, the big picture view that this is actually really going to be helpful for you. So it's not, um, it's not a re-traumatization. The way that, that you and I are going to talk about moving through this, it's not a re-traumatization. Right. It's, it's, not, it's also not telling the other person. A lot of people have said, well, I can't forgive because then I would have to tell them. And then they would, even though you're telling me, Dr. Welch, that I'm not going to be a victim again, they would see it as an opportunity to come and victimize. You don't have to tell them. Right. Okay, great. In fact, there are people it's not safe to tell. Right. right. It's not like the, um, you know, I don't know, is it the six step program for alcoholism where you call up somebody and, and you say, you know, you're supposed to forgive them publicly. I mean, I don't even know if that's a real thing, but. Um, you to make amends in, in, yeah, in the right. various, the various anonymous programs, whether it's Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, whatever kind of, of uh, AA program it is, if it's following the 12 steps, one of the steps, I think it might be step number four. But make amends, yes. It's to make amends. And that means that I seek your forgiveness. But more to the point that, that I realize that I, you might not be ready to forgive. I am going to put myself forward to, to um, undo to the extent possible. I'm going to own the harm that I caused. To the extent possible, I'm going to undo the harm I caused, and then I'm going to leave it in your court to forgive me. Even in even in those programs, you can't demand forgiveness of right. somebody. But certainly, that's the flip side. In in forgiveness work, we're not we're not making amends. We're also not telling this person that um, that we forgive them. You can tell some people certainly, but you know, a lot of people. If you even told them. I'm thinking about people in my life that I've forgiven. There are some of them, if I said, you know, by the way, I've forgiven you, they would think, well, that's mighty, that's mighty awesome of you. They, they're not the kind of person who could hear that without re-injuring me. Right. They would do something that I would then have to forgive again and go through the whole process. There are some people that it's just not, they're not safe people emotionally. Some people aren't safe physically. So the good news is you can forgive these folks without opening yourself up to re-traumatization and to re-injury from these same people. Absolutely. And, and my point, um, and definitely correct me if I'm wrong, is that you know this forgiveness process that we're talking about is a personal experience for you. It's internal and it, it, it doesn't rely on you contacting the person that may be the subject of the forgiveness or, or anybody. It's, it's really 100% internal. That's right. I do forgiveness work with my clients sometimes uh, who have been physically or emotionally or sexually traumatized by parents who are no longer living. You can still forgive somebody who's dead because at the end of the day, forgiveness work is really, it's not about them. Forgiveness is about you. There's a quote that's been attributed to so many people that I no longer attribute it to anyone anymore. And it is failing to forgive is like drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Hmm. No, I've never. It's not about them. It's about you. It's about you. They look, I, I, I totally agree. A lot of people who've told me about things that, that they're working on forgiving, those things are unforgivable. A mother who finds out that, her boyfriend was sexually assaulting her three-year-old. That's unforgivable. That person is a heinous monster who deserves a life in prison. I mean, I'm not compassionate about that. Right. Okay. I'm compassionate toward the child. I'm compassionate toward my mo- that mother. I'm not compassionate toward the perpetrator. The reason to forgive the perpetrator is it's not about the perpetrator. It's about you. They don't deserve forgiveness. You deserve happiness. To enable That's you to about. move on healthy and positively. So you can be happy. Absolutely. That's what it's about. I think people find it a lot easier to forgive once they realize, oh, I don't have to say no big deal. I don't have to say come back and do it again. I don't have to have contact with the abuser right. again. I don't have to. Um, I don't have to disavow my feelings about the events. I don't have to give up that I was right. That mother was right. That's a horrifying thing. She was right to feel everything she felt. But when it gets to the point that it's stopping you from being able to move on with your life, you're allowing someone who took something precious from you to keep 
doing it. And it's and disabling That's where you. I right. have a problem. I don't want them to keep doing it. What happened to you, whatever it was, it was awful enough. Let's say that you were married with some, to somebody who, um, who reveled in your pain, who used and still uses the children as a wedge, who uses the children to spy on you, who um, I, I've known people who used a child's medical condition. They would get 50-50 custody, and then they would re- refuse to give the child medication for their 50% of custody. Yeah, I know. Yeah. That's, that's unfortunately, these that? scenarios are not as uncommon as one might think. Yeah, because we're tasked with, as, as good humans, we're tasked with loving our children more than we hate our ex, and that requires some forgiveness work. Sometimes one of the people we need to forgive is us. I know that I look back on some of my past and I think, oh, I introduced a couple guys to my son way too soon. No, they didn't wind up doing anything awful to my son, but that wasn't a great experience for my kid to be meeting adults that are in my life that aren't going to stay in my life. Right. So, so part of the work of forgiveness is understanding that one of the people we need to forgive in all likelihood is us. I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, and to be honest with you, you just mentioned, you rattled off so many things that I want to bring up. I'm going to forget more than half of them, but that's okay. I, um, be, before we get into us and, you know, kind of accepting, forgiving our actions, um, you know, what you said about focusing on you as opposed to the other person um, who may have caused you trauma or did you wrong or whatever it may be. And I preach this all the time to my tribe is that, you know, especially in a divorce context, um, when you're dealing in a contested situation and, and, and your ex is, you know, doing everything in their power to kind of thwart the process and, and hurt you, prolong it, whatever, you know, make things difficult. I tell, I tell people, listen, you, you got to stop focusing on their actions because you can't control them and you can't control no matter how hard you try what they do or don't do. You can only control you. Um, and so I always try to refocus people back to themselves. And, you know, that's the best you can do, unfortunately, right now is focus on you um, and make sure that you are acting and doing the things that you need to be doing to move forward. Um, so I think there's, we're in alignment there. Yeah, there's a certain amount of emotional liberation that comes, comes from keeping one's own side of the street clean, as spotlessly clean as possible. Meaning, I call it, yeah. I, I, when I analogize know, it to like wearing the white gloves in a, a high class restaurant. <laughs> the waiter with white gloves. You don't you want to be the you want to wear the white gloves. You don't want to have the dirt and the mud on them. Yeah. Yeah. Because uh this is not science what I'm about to say. This is 20 years of being a college professor talking right now. My favorite humans in the world are emerging adults, 18 to probably 25. Those are my people. And those were who I was teaching for the most part. Over the years, because I, ta- I, I used all my courses as a way to drop in relationship science because we get taught how to get a job and what to do with a job and we get taught nothing about the thing that really makes or breaks people's happiness, which is the quality of the relationship. So I was dropping that stuff in every place I could work it in, in all my classes. And therefore, my students would show up in my office hours and tell me about their parents' divorce and how it had affected them. And I will tell you that the parent that the children ultimately chose, if they were put in a situation to have to choose, the person they ultimately chose was the parent who didn't talk smack about the other one. Not surprised. Now, this was even if the parent who raised them did a competent job raising them, but prevented them from knowing the other parent, or they allowed them to know the other parent, they just constantly undermined what was going on at that house. And they constantly, you know, said terrible things about the other parent. These children are half your former partner. When you insult that partner, you insult the personhood of your child. And your children, no matter how you try to explain that away, they know that's what you're doing. So what happens is over time, they're taking a beating from you whenever you talk smack about the other parent. So when you keep your side of the street clean, not only do you have the emotional and spiritual benefit of doing the right thing, but ultimately you win. You win in every important regard. And for a long time, it may seem that you don't. It may seem that 
you know, the kids spend all their time with the other parent because the other parent has convinced them that you're, uh, they, they alienate parent, yeah, parental parent alienation. alienation. Yeah. Okay. They, they engage in parental alienation in the long run. These kids come back. And yeah, I've, I've, I've heard that. I've seen that firsthand myself. Um, of course, when you're going through it and the kids are younger and the, the alienated parent, um, is crying out for help and not getting the relief that they should be getting from the court or, you know, other, uh, professionals, that's a hard pill to get them to try to swallow, to say, don't worry about, you know, the teen years or the early twenties when they will come back to you and you will have a great relationship. You know, they still miss all that time. Right. Although, and every year is important in any person's life. You know, I have a first grader, for example, and it's the whole lockdown COVID school situation. You know, people are talking about how, you know, a first grader and, you know, those are the formative years and it's so important, which I agree, but every year is important um, no matter what grade you're in. And so, um, you know, to say to somebody, a parent that just hold on, do the right thing, even though you're not a part of your child's life now, it's, it's so hard. How do they, how do you coach them to get through that? So I do a lot of coaching to keep people away from a circumstance where a judge gets to say what happens with your family. Right. And how I coach them is I teach them never, ever draw a, you. I call it this, give everything to your former spouse that you possibly, possibly can until there's a line in the sand that you, that you can't give. For example, my child was born with type one diabetes. Now with my ex and he allows me to talk about him. He's now 19. Um, with my ex, my ex uh, has serious, still has serious polysubstance addiction issues. That's why I knew which step it was. Okay. And he is a good man with a bad problem. Right. He's a good, but that being said, that didn't mean that our divorce wasn't contentious and hard and painful and, and terrifying to me because here's a guy who's drinking really heavily and he has sole care for days at a time of a child who has to have insulin on the regular. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I do what I teach other people to do. And part of that is never lose sight of the humanity of your former spouse. You chose them and you, and, and even if they have done monstrous things, there were good reasons why you chose them. They weren't all bad. Keep that humanity in mind and keep in mind that your child is half them and that your you love that child more than anyone or anything. That's what parents do. It's how we feel. So this means that we have to go through the forgiveness exercise to reach a place of compassion for ourselves and for the other so that we can refuse to pick up the rope when they try to play a tug of war. For example, my ex got furious one time that I got unemployment insurance when he didn't. And he called my family and my friends and me in a drunken rage. And told my mother that I was a whore. I mean, really? Telling somebody's mother this? <laughs> okay, here's what I did with that. Nothing. When he called me, I said, oh, wow, it sounds like you're not feeling very good right now. Let's talk later. And then I quietly hung up the phone. I didn't write him a nasty letter. Right now, I that's powerful, right? I right. didn't call his friends and family and trash talk him. I didn't tell my son. My son still doesn't know this story. Well, not I didn't do any of that. And you know what happened then? A few days later, he realized he had done something. He didn't remember quite what it was. He realized he had done something. And he said, did I call your mother the other day? <laughs> and I said, yes. And, you know, he goes, did I say some things that were really bad? And I said, yes. And he said, oh, uh, and because I have a history of apologizing when I am in the wrong, he was able to do it. When you have somebody that you need to forgive, part of what you're going to need to do ultimately is to realize that if you want to be happy, you have to keep your own side of the street clean. You have to do it. 
which is hard, admittedly, right? I mean, it, it's, yeah. uh, you kind of have to train yourself and know some strategies to, to do that. Yeah. So let's talk about those strategies because I don't want to like talk about how important forgiveness is and then leave people with no idea how to do it. I was just about to ask you because we're running out of time. (laughs) Like, can we go through some of the things that we're talking about? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so there are basically four steps to actually forgiving somebody. And the the first one um, really is to feel what you feel like if, so research shows that most people are triggered for one and a half to two years, just by the mention of their ex-spouse's name. Wow. During and after a divorce, because again, this is somebody that you trusted so much that you married them. And in, if you're having a contentious divorce, that almost always means children. Right. Almost always. All right. So this means that it's not just that you have to deal with them now, you have to deal with them forever because, you know, this person isn't your spouse anymore, but they are your family forever and ever. How it goes. That's how, that's what you get for having children with the man or the woman. That's yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, we had terrible fires where I live. We still do. We have an area in my state. We have an area the size of Rhode Island that is on fire. Oh my Lord. Yeah. And I, I live in Oregon right fires. now. And, and we have an area the size of Rhode Island that's on fire. And we had two weeks almost where the air quality was so bad that we could not go outside. We were in the smokiest city in the world. We had the worst air pollution in the world during those weeks. And my ex, checked in on us because we're still family. So how do you get there? First of all, for the first year or two, just bite your tongue. Don't say bad stuff about the other parent. Just, just will yourself to do it. Write it in a journal, save it for a journal, tell it to your friends. Don't tell it to them. Don't tell it to your kids Right. and just feel what you feel because yeah. Okay. They're a bitch or they're a bastard. Go with it. I'm not going to ask you to forgive during that time because you're, you're in such a vulnerable place that you're just, I'm not, it's, it's called premature forgiveness, false forgiveness. If you do it before you've processed your emotions. So give yourself a year to two years after that though, really, if you're still hanging on to it, that's willful. I remember um, being in a class with someone in, in my own, where I, where I divorced, which was Bear County, Texas. There's uh, a class you have to take. And they show videos um, that really bring it home how devastating it is to children emotionally and physiologically when parents fight in front of them. Yeah, yeah. Most courts have a a mandatory video like that, right? Yeah, yeah. And I hope most people can hang on to it, but I get the feeling a lot of them don't hang on to it. Well, I was struck by someone in the class who kept bringing up how bitter they were at their ex. And finally, the person leading the class said, how long have you been divorced? 10 years. Wow. They had been mandated to come back to the class. 10 years. Okay, folks, you get a year to two to feel this and talk about it with your friends, your therapist, and your journal, but never your children or your ex. You don't get to talk to them about it. That makes sense. You get one to two years. After that, you need to be moving on to step number two. After you feel what you feel, and write it down, by the way. The second thing is you set boundaries. Actually, I, I advise you to set the boundaries while you're processing what you feel. Okay, the great. boundaries are where you decide, okay, um, because forgiveness without boundaries doesn't work. If you just forgive and you don't have boundaries, you people keep doing it. And I, I don't want you to have fresh stuff to process. Right. You're, you're, you're supposed to not repeat, repeat the same mistakes. Yeah. We want to lather, rinse, but don't repeat. <laughs> <laughs> so, so the lather and the rinse involves process your feelings. And while you're doing that, also do step two, which is create boundaries. Think about the things that led up to your divorce. Think about the behaviors that you no longer wish to tolerate. Research in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, longitudinal research that lasted more than 25 years, showed that when people got divorced, they got divorced thinking, ah, good, I'm going to get rid of these problems. And then they didn't. They stayed embroiled in the same crap dynamic with the same person, they may as well stay together and at least had economic stability. Right. Okay. So what to do instead? Set a boundary that the only contact you're going to have with your ex is contact relevant to the direct care and well-being of your children, that you're going to view it as a business type relationship. In a business relationship, you would not say, what the hell are you wearing? (laughs) You would not say, 
you, you would not say you have no idea how to drive. You would not do these things because it's a business relationship and you would lose that whole relationship. Look, you can't afford to lose this relationship. If you're getting divorced and you still have children together, this is family forever and ever. But what you can do and what you must do for your own mental health and for the ability to forgive, you have to decide, okay, if this has nothing to do with, with the business at hand, let's say there aren't any kids and you're still dividing some property and you're still deciding, okay, when will the health insurance transition to individual policies instead of the family? If you're, if you're still doing those things, right? then you set a boundary where you say, you know, I've loved you for a long time. I still have some love for you. And that's nearly always true. Very few people who divorce are just completely done with feeling love for their partner. That's why it hurts so much. That's why it hurts so much. I still have feelings of love for you, but I've realized for my own well-being that I have to talk to you only about things that relate to our business together. I need to emotionally separate. And so I'm going to be respectful to you anytime you reach out. But when it goes beyond the bounds of, you know, can you keep the dog for me on Saturday? Or... Um, oh, I, I'm in my new house and I forgot what was the heating and air company we used to use. Cause I'd like to still use them. Right. Okay. Be kind about those answers. Don't be like, go figure it out for yourself. I'm not Google <laughs> answer the question politely, but don't extend the conversation. Chit chat. No chit chat. Yeah. Don't chit chat. Don't, don't remain hooked in to that relationship. So one caveat here is let's say that your ex decides in order to because a lot of people they do still love each other and so what happens is when they can't talk nicely anymore they fight because fighting's better than nothing from the perspective of at least one of these folks and so if you're the partner who's realized i want to forgive and that means setting a boundary and that means setting a business-like boundary and this person tries to start fights with you in order to maintain the connection. First of all, I want you to see that for what it is. That's right. what it is. They're pushing your buttons. They, they're trying to keep you engaged. And sure. since, since positive engagements are no longer working, they're trying negative engagements. And what you do in that case is you say, or text, or email, it seems like we're losing the thread on treating each other with respect right now. Let's revisit later. And then you don't answer again, no matter what they call and leave a message or text or anything. You just ignore it until you see that everything's calmed down. And then you pick the thread back up only about the business at hand. So what some parents do is they try to keep this going by involving, they try to make everything about the kids. For example, they try to say, I don't like who you're dating. And that's about the kids. Right. Nope, that's not about the kids. Legally, it's not about the kids. Um, no, my dating life, my sex life actually isn't about the kids unless I'm running a brothel and bringing them to take your kid to work day. <laughs> By the way, I know somebody that happened to. Get out of here. I am not making that shit up. Unless that's the scenario, then, it, and I have permission to share that. Where they was this brothel? Did you still do that? I'm not, yeah, right? <laughs> No. So, so unless, unless you're doing that kind of thing, when the, when they say your camping trip with the kids where your, your new partner is going, that's my business. Not unless this person's a convicted pedophile. It's not. What you can say is, well, you know, um, I can't discuss that with you, but I can discuss the time for pickup and drop off. And if they say, but about the, about the partner that you have now, you say, yeah, that's, that's not on the table for discussion. Let's get back to the pickup and drop off time. The third time they refuse to be reasonable. You say, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to talk to you about this later. You just and, don't yeah. take the bait. Right. Well, and that's, would you agree? That's easier said than done. But again, with some coaching and some, you know, help on your side, you, it's a matter of just training yourself to when you're in the moment in these things, kind of take a breath. And think about how you're going to react instead of yeah. just reacting. That's right. What it amounts to is writing down on your list. And I encourage people to keep lists. I love lists. 
they're, they're fantastic. Keep it on the computer so you can go back to it often and nobody else sees it, that you don't want seeing it because it's password protected. So you're going to write down, you know, um, what you felt, what you feel about this partner. You're going to journal that during this year and a half to two years. And you're also going to journal, okay, here are the behaviors I'm not tolerating anymore. And by not tolerating, that doesn't mean that you're going to be ugly when those behaviors arise. It means you're going to withdraw contact. You're, you got divorced. The joy of divorce, there's so much pain in it. The joy of it is you get to say no to being treated like that ever again, ever. Bye. Mm -hmm. Not only that, you get to create your post-divorce life, which yes. is now a blank canvas, I tell people. Yeah, you get to do that. So uh, the third step is to um, practice empathy. There is literally no forgiveness without empathy. Now, this is the part where most people say, no way, I can't do that. Okay, so what this involves is not excusing the offender, right. not excusing, not condoning what they did. I'm never going to ask you to do either of those things. Not saying it's no big deal, but right. in order to really forgive them, you do have to see the events through their eyes. Okay. So I have to think, for example, from my ex's perspective, I got unemployment compensation and then he didn't. And from his perspective, that was really unfair. And from his perspective, he was drinking heavily and he wasn't in control of his emotions. Okay. Okay. Does that make what he did right? No. No. Does it mean that I need to say, ah, oh, no big deal? No. Does it mean that I am making light of my feelings in the moment of having him tell my mother that I was a whore? No. No. But it's but what it does mean is I'm, what happens when, when people practice empathy is they see it was never about you. That somehow makes it a lot easier. It was never about me. That was never about me. By the way, I did some stuff to him that he found really hard to forgive. I tried to get full custody because of his addiction issues. I tried to get him to sign a paper that gave me full custody. Now, from his perspective, he was angry about that for years. Right. Hopefully, he did the emotional work of, she loves our kid more than anyone or anything. She really believed I wasn't capable of taking proper care of him. So, of course, she tried this. I don't know that he did that. We didn't have that conversation. I'm not trying. In other words, I'm not trying to present myself as blameless here. I'm trying to present examples of here's something that would be really hurtful. And here's what you need to do to get around. You have to see it from their point of view. You have right. to. Now, sometimes... Okay, I'm going to give you another example. It's not me, but somebody who said I could use their example. A woman who was raped in her early teens who said she went home and she wrote down from the rapist's point of view, what did this look like? Wow. Well, right. okay, it's really hard to have empathy for the rapist. Right. Because what this person did was not correct. But she was able to see that from the rapist's point of view, he just thought that she felt the same way. Most rapes are date rapes between people who already knew, know each other. He was just really into it. He, he thought, oh, well, you know, she's just saying no and fighting me back a little because that's what girls are taught to say. He didn't really conceptualize it as a crime. The environment that he was brought up in, women didn't really, misogyny was just in the water. Right. Okay. Do we, what he did was wrong. It's not excusable or condonable. Right. But that allowed her to understand the vast majority of what happens to us that hurts really isn't even about us. It's about them. It's about their history. And that makes it easier to let go of. So the, the final step is to really, um, after you've written down, you know, your feelings, You've taken time to process them with a therapist, with friends, with your journal. All those sources are good. With a dating coach, a divorce coach, any of that's good. All of right. it's good. Not with your kids, not with your ex. Sure. And after you've set your boundaries, you don't tell, by the way, you don't need to tell your ex most of the time what those boundaries are. You can only do that if they're super reasonable, not, not your boundaries. That's then you're going to start arguing person. over the boundaries, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't, you don't have to tell them what your boundaries are. I, I rely on the wisdom of your audience to know whether it's a good idea to inform them of the boundaries. 
then you've written down, you know, um, from your ex's position, what is this like? Finally, finally, you're going to kind of take this whole thing and turn it into a big kind of bird's eye forgiveness exercise where you combine all this into, here's what I need to forgive you for. Dear so-and-so, these, these things happened. And this is how I felt about them and how I still feel about some of them. And I see this through your eyes. Here's what it looks like when I see it through your eyes. And I want you to know that I am choosing to let go of my anger and my vengefulness about these events. I choose to let go of my anger and vengefulness about the time you called my mother and called me a bad name to her. I choose to let go of my anger and vengefulness about the times that you scared me because you were under the influence and our son was at your house. These are some of mine, but people have their own. Sure. Whatever it is you, you're choosing to forgive. And then you say, at the same time, I have boundaries. In order to keep this from becoming a, a necessary ongoing thing, my boundaries are that when I notice that your speech is slurred, I'm going to call the police right then and have them make a well check at your house. Right? If you come over to my house and you're under the influence, I'm going to refuse your admission. I'm going to refuse to talk with you. Right. If you call me a name and we're on the phone, I'm going to say, sounds like we needed to talk some other time. I'm going to hang up. If that keeps happening, I'm going to insist that 100% of communication is documented by email and text. There you go. You're not going to send this letter. Right. I was going to say that. Right. This is not a, a letter that you're going to... No. This is just to help you process. And I want to emphasize, this is not a one and done thing. It's not a one and done thing. The bigger the offense, the more often a person may need to go through this exercise. And when it's something we have done, the hardest person to forgive usually is us. Yeah. But what I love about all this, and then I know we're wrapping up, but this has been great. You know, I think everybody, hopefully, who is listening, you know, it's just going to just absorb all of this like I am. But to me, the whole point of all this really is you are letting go of the power that this other person may have had at one time over you. And you are now giving yourself the power back um, to move on, to let go, right? And so we frame that in forgiveness uh, with the term forgiveness, but it's really about, right, not letting them have the power over you, which it's a good, and I teach this for people going through the divorce process currently in dealing with conflict is don't let them, you know, you're reacting to, to what they're doing, um, cause a reaction. What's, well, what's that phrase? The, uh, cause reaction. It's a scientific thing. <laughs> um, I don't know right now. Okay. It's like, <laughs> I don't know why I'm going brain fart, but it, like you're letting them have power over you. It's basically, the the moral of that story you know is that right oh i couldn't agree more i mean i I think that really what you do when you forgive is you you heal some of your past you can never change your past but you can heal it you heal some of your past you reclaim your life and you get control over what you accept in your future you can't control everything ever but you control you can control yourself, the behavior you allow to touch your own life. And um, to some extent, I mean, obviously not to every extent, not everything crosses your desk, but you get some control over what, what comes into your own life. And you get this immense power to operate from a place of strength and well-being as you seek a happy life with somebody else. Because here's the truth. Almost everybody going through divorce says, I'll never do it again. And almost everybody does it again. But how you do it again can be so much more positive. But you have to change a little bit. And what I always refer to as, you know, kind of put in the work. Um, And a lot of people kind of want to just skip over that um, because it's hard. It takes, you know, like you said, it's not one and done most of the time. And um, it's a process. But in order to really move on and, and become healthier and have the life that you deserve, you, you got to kind of go through the process. You know, I, I like to frame it as you're in for some pain either way. There's the pain of staying stuck and there's the pain of doing the work. It's pain either way. It's just that one form of pain leads to a great life and the I other like one leads to more of the same. 
I like that much better. Can I use that? <laughs> you can. Totally. <laughs> yeah, you're going to be in pain either way, right? So Well, you you just are. I mean, it just it just is what it is. A lot true. of what happens in divorce just is what it is, and the best we can do with some of it, frankly, is to make it as least bad as possible. Right? It's it's going to be bad, but it could be a lot less bad. I mean, I could have called all of his friends and his family. Where is that going to get us? Was that going to go anywhere positive? Then he could have said, well, you want, you want our son for this special day with your family. I'm not going to give you that. You know what I did every single time he was sober and he wanted extra time with our kid. I said, yes. Why? Because you need to give everything you can to this co-parent, everything you can, because ultimately the quality of your life and your child's life depends on doing as much good as you possibly can, even with the person you're divorced from. I, I love that message. And I think we're going to end there because I don't want to mess that up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being on the show. Um, we're going to have to talk again because uh, there's just so much that we can talk about and you can shed light on. And I love it. And I know my audience will love it too. So hopefully we'll do that. Thank you so much. But tell people where they can find you and where they can read your books. Absolutely. You can find out oh so much about me and my books at <laughs> lovefactually, with an F, lovefactually.co, Love factually.co. It's got a list of all seven of my books, one of which is specifically for people who are, uh, I call it my love factually for single parents and those dating them. It's the first third of the book is about getting past your divorce and setting up a healthy, as healthy a relationship as can exist with your ex and reclaiming your life. The second third of the book is, okay, how are we going to find this person? What standards are we going to have? How are we going to act when we're on our dates? And the third part of the book is, okay, now that I've got them, what do I do with them? You know, how do I meld my family and maybe they have a family? How do I deal with issues between my children and the new partner? How do I actually make a go of this? And I put all that in the book because even if you don't have a partner yet or in the very beginning or the very end, no matter where you are in the stage, having the the bird's eye science-based view of the entire process is immensely helpful to people I have found. So uh, yeah. That's the one I would recommend for your audience. But I do have seven books out. They're all love factually. They all have a blue cover, and uh, you know you can find all of them widely distributed. One of them's in five languages. If you want it in Polish, you can get it in Polish. <laughs> oh wow! No, that wouldn't work for me. But <laughs> I um yeah, and I know you can download for if you want to check them out before you you know purchase them. You can download a free chapter. Um, and on the, all those links will be on the show notes, uh, on my website podcast page. So cool. be sure to check that out. Thank you again. And we will have to talk soon. Yes. And, and Jason, the other thing is I, I coach all over the world and I actually have recently been developing content for uh, a new app just oh. for couples called paired. So when, you know, when your audience gets to a point where they are in a relationship or actually I do a section for, I, I do um, some extensive content for that app about getting ready for love. And if mm-hmm. people decide that's where they're at, they could also look into, uh, into that app. It's the first app of its kind. Is it out? It's, it's, it's releasing this month. Yeah. Okay. So well, by the time you're listening to this, it will be out. Yeah. I hope. So, um, I will get that information. Thank you for mentioning that. I will get that information and, and, put that also in the show notes um, with maybe a link where they can just get to it quickly and, or how they can find it. But that is awesome. Um, that sounds really helpful and hopefully people will uh, use it and, and benefit. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, it's been a great pleasure. I look forward to next time. All right. How about that conversation about love, divorce, forgiveness and why it all you see it is all really intertwined and you really can't get away or forget about one aspect and concentrate on the other you really got to put in the work and do everything and it all matters so that being said thank you for listening to this episode if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast so you get all new episodes when they come out and always shoot me an email if you want me to do any particular topics that you haven't heard about yet um If you're looking for personal help for your divorce, 
check out my divorce resources. I have a uh, divorce membership community that you can join for uh, a very affordable monthly rate where you get access to all my divorce uh, video courses and tutorials, including live coaching with Juan. So check it out. I also do one-on-one coaching if you are interested in that. In the meantime, all I'm going to ask you to do is be strong, act confident, and stay positive. I'm Jason Lavoie, a.k.a. The Divorce Resource Guy, and I'll be seeing you real soon.